I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations, my friends, in the name of the Lord. I hope you are having a fabuloso day. Uh, I generally don't do my devotionals on Saturdays, um, but I couldn't wait for this one because today's chapter has a couple verses in it that have bothered me for decades and decades and decades, since the day I got saved, as a matter of fact. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what God has to show me about this and see if he can answer a question or two I have about it. So you're going to see me thinking with my mouth open today in a rather serious fashion. So Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to read the whole chapter first without commentary. And then uh, I'm going to go back and just spend most of the devotional time on this passage of scripture, which troubles me the most. And, uh, and then we'll chat about that. All right, so here we go. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice or sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart 
and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, I've highlighted this next passage because this is what we're going to spend most of our time talking about today. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let me pass this stuff. We'll come back to that in a minute. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised for in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. All right. That's the... That's a whole chapter. Now let's take a look at, come back up here, verse 26. This passage has bothered me for years with no answer. I'm going to read it again. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. All right. On the face of it, it looks like it's saying that we can lose our salvation, that we can uh, walk away from it, be pulled away from it, that we can lose it. And it's, he goes on to say that if that's, let's just say that's true. Let's say we can lose it. If you walk away from it, that's it. There's no more sacrifice for sins. Um. There's only one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father but by me. And if you reject Jesus, there is no other way to the Father. There is none of this, uh, all trees reach to the sky, all mountains point to the sky, all rivers run to the sea, all these different ways to get to God the Father. Jesus was very exclusive when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So, that being the case, we look at this, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I could lose what I have because if I do turn my back on Jesus, if I deliberately keep on sinning after I've received knowledge of the truth, I'm done. 
So the answer to what this means, and this, now this is me thinking with my mouth open, and I just put these notes together really quickly this morning, and I'm going to spend some time with some Jewish friends of mine to make sure I've got this right. To me, the answer lies in two places. One, the cultural context. You know, the audience. Who, who was this written to? When was it written and who was it written to? And the second is the scriptural context. What does the scripture have to say about losing your salvation? Because it does appear to say that, to be talking about someone who was saved, but then something happens and they keep on rebelling and sinning and they leave and there's no more sacrifice or sins and they're going to fall into the hands of an angry God. Um, wow. It seems to say that, doesn't it? So let's take a look at a few things. There's one of three ways to interpret what's said here. One, you can lose your salvation. Two, this passage, passage is a hypothetical. You can't really lose your salvation, but if you could, this is what would happen. Or three, this is written to unbelievers in the midst of believers as a warning to choose before it's too late. Here's a solution I came to. I start with the scriptural context. Use scripture to judge scripture, right? What does the scripture have to say about our salvation, its permanency, or maybe lack thereof? Uh, I went to Jesus and I went to Paul. Two fairly authoritative voices. According to Jesus and Paul, we can't lose it. Jesus says in John chapter 10, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal, hint forever, eternal life and they shall never, that's your time frame, they shall never perish. Jesus' sheep will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus makes it very, very clear that those who belong to him are set in stone. They are fixed. They cannot lose their salvation. Now, Paul, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And I've shown this diagram before. The word saved is a special verb. Now, in the Greek language and Hebrew language, I call them picture languages because it's not just a dictionary definition. It has three-dimensional depth. This particular verb is a verb that points to a time in the past where something happened. The repercussions of that event carry through the present and are pointing at, the, at a time in the future, not yet realized, where the end will be met and you'll it'll be re the end of your situation will be realized. So concerning salvation, we were, when I bowed my knee to the Messiah in the past, I'm being, the repercussions of that is carrying me through the present. That's called sanctification. We were justified in the past when he bowed our knee to him, when I bowed my knee to him. I'm being sanctified. And then I'm going to be glorified at some point in the future. They this is a salvation process. I'm not done being saved in the strictest sense of the word. I was saved, I'm being saved, so that one day I will be saved. Uh, Paul says elsewhere, he says, God will finish the work he began in you. There's no room in that for a break in the process. So, 
the scripture that I'm going to use alongside of this Hebrews passage are going to be that John chapter 10 and what Paul says. So, though this passage, apparently it could be saying that we could lose our salvation, we know that indeed it cannot be saying that because it is stated very plainly elsewhere in scripture. So when you have a, a passage of scripture that could say something, could say one or two things, you don't stop there. You look elsewhere in scripture to see if there's a plain, understandable uh, application that will deter help you determine which of the two meanings are correct. So I'm saying, this is not saying that I can lose my salvation, but what is it saying? Hmm. Well, now we look at the cultural side of the house. There are three groups of Jews being addressed in this letter to the Hebrews. Hebraic Jews, uh, believers, they live in Israel. They are, um, are very much attached to the temple and the, the customs and the Judaistic environment. Um, there's Hellenistic Jews, Jews that live outside of Israel and they're believers in Jesus. And then there's Torah observant Judaistic Jews. They're not believers in Jesus, but yet many, some of them, if not many, would still be fellowshipping with the Hebraic Jews that are also attending temple services. How do I know that? Well, I don't. But what I do know is the human nature. And I know that in every church I've ever attended, there's been a core of true believers. And in that church, there's also been unbelievers who are attending for their own reasons. They want to feel good about themselves or they're, it's, it's good for business. You know, I, I won't, it's not, they're not all that crass, but there are unbelievers that attend every church and they reap the benefits of being around God's people because there are benefits. The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. And when God blesses a local body of Christ, everybody benefits that attends there, the believers and the unbelievers. You've heard me mention before, I've had an old Presbyterian pastor said that there's the church visible and the church invisible. The church visible is everybody who shows up on a given Sabbath. The church invisible is a group within that larger group that are the true believers. And how do we know who is who? It's kind of hard until hard times hit. Then those who are not true followers of Christ will fall away. John says that in his epistle. He said, you know, those people that left us, they just proved that they were never part of us. The picture he's painting is that there was a there was a local body, a local house church, and there were people that were attending that everybody thought were real believers, but when hard times hit, they fell away. And John is saying, you know, they're proving that they were never part of us. They were with us, but never truly part of us. So everybody has that. So I I'm not, I don't think I'm it's outside the realm of possibility to think that with these. Hebraic believers, Messianic Jews in Jerusalem and throughout Israel, that they would have non-Messianic Jews fellowshipping with them and worshiping with them, hanging out with them, being around them. 
So we've already determined that this passage isn't saying you can lose your salvation. So Paul, oh, I'm sorry, the writer of Hebrews can't be addressing the true believers in the Jewish church. He has to be addressing these non-believers. And he's telling them, you know, if you deliberately keep on sinning, and sinning, by the way, literally means to miss the mark. Uh, David had, um, in his army, he had a crew of slingshotters. And it was said that they could hit a reed at 50 paces or whatever the distance was without missing the mark. And the word is same word is for sinning. It also hints at rebellion. If we deliberately keep on rebelling against God after we receive knowledge of the truth, have they received knowledge of the truth? Well, they've heard it. They have, uh, maybe they haven't embraced it, but they've received it in the sense that they have heard it. It's up here. They've heard the message. And if you continue to walk away from God after you've received that message, there's no more sacrifice for sins. That's it. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, like I said before. So to the unbelieving, to the unbelieving Jew in the midst of believers, he's telling them, it's a warning. He's he's up until now, he's been he's been making the argument how Jesus is our new high priest and how the temple and everything that it represents is a picture of the true temple. And we have a one singular high priest who himself was our sacrifice and who himself has paved the way so that we can become members of the true Jewish congregation with our high priest, Yeshua. And if you walk away from that, there's no more sacrifice for sins. There's nothing left. The temple, it's not enough. The sacrifices in the temple aren't enough. And he's prepping the way here because you know that within five or six years, this temple is going to be destroyed. The heart and soul and the identity of many religious Jews will be flattened and no more, and the Jews will be scattered. And if your heart and soul is attached to the temple and it's the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices that are being offered there, when that's gone, what is there for you? There remains no more sacrifice for sins. Jesus has paved the way. We don't have to depend on the temple. Now, let me go down here again. If we cannot lose our salvation, there's only one group that this passage speaks to directly, unbelieving Jews, like I mentioned. Indirectly, though, it's reminding all Jews, believers and unbelievers alike, of the absolute seriousness of the new covenant and its great high priest, Jesus. Historically, within five years or so of this letter being received, Rome would destroy the temple, removing from Israel its identity and spiritual anchor. They have to come to grips with the fact that there is a new anchor, Yeshua. Remember those earlier days, he says, after you received the light. And now he's back to talking to the believers, to the congregation. You need to persevere. So there's, there's to me, there's still some mystery here. I 
definitely believe that you cannot lose your salvation. So therefore, this passage in 21 through, was it, uh, let's see, 21 through 31, 26 through 31, excuse me. He's definitely talking to an unbeliever, but a special class of unbeliever. An unbeliever who is around, hanging out with believers. Um, when I was in the military, we'd have Bible studies all the time. And uh, at one point, this one person held the Bible studies at his house. He got his church to loan him a church bus, and he would come to the base and pick us all up and drive us to his house. And there were there's there'd be twenty to thirty servicemen eating dinner at this man's house, having Bible study there. And not everybody who came were believers. Some who came, they came because this was a nice place to be. Bill Bradley and Dot Bradley were amazing people, and their home was incredibly welcoming. And they loved the servicemen. So many of us who came as believers, and many of us came who weren't believers, but they enjoyed being in the company of believers. When I was in high school, I was not a Christian. Towards my senior year in high school, uh, um, I had started partying pretty hard and started doing a lot of pretty stupid things. And I discovered in my senior year in high school that I enjoyed being in the company of Christians because they didn't judge me. They didn't call me names. They didn't expect me to be a certain way. I could be exactly who I wanted to be around them. If I was quiet, they let me be quiet. If I wanted to talk, they listened. It was pleasure to be around them. I wasn't a Christian. And if Jesus Christ had come back at that moment, the fact that I was hanging out with Christians wouldn't have done me any good. So that's how I know that there's probably unbelieving Jews hanging out with the believing Jews. Because someone who is truly saved, their lives are truly changed. And they're pleasant to be around. They're not judgmental. They're loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind. They're loving their neighbor as themselves. Whether or not that neighbor is a believer. It's pleasant to be around them. So I don't have any problem believing that there would be unbelieving Jews in the midst of believing Jews. And I think the author takes a, step, takes a step aside and speaks to that group directly with this passage. And I'm not afraid of this passage anymore. What it says is true. If you walk away from Jesus, there is no other way to God. All that remains is a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume God's enemies. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. a warning that needs to be heeded. But this warning is not to us Christians. It's to those on the periphery that show up at our church, that show up in our circles. For whatever reason, they're there. This is a warning to them. All right. Well, that, ladies and jelly spoons, is the reason I came back on Saturday to do this because 
This passage has bothered me for years, and I think I can finally put it to bed, at least for the time being. Uh, and uh, I am open to correction in any of this. If anybody wants to uh, email me or chat with me, uh, let me know. I have a private group for those who are listening to my devotionals. Um, we could have a conversation there. We could have a conversation here on Facebook and uh, in, the, in the public page I've got. Um, I'll be willing to discuss this with anybody. So have a great day, a fabulous day, and enjoy the Lord's Day tomorrow. This is Paige. Here's my coffee. And I am out of here. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And neither should my thoughts be your thoughts. You need to think for yourself. <laughs>